Welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of the hosts, Asia Bonilla. And I'm Charles Sheeland, the other host. And today we are discussing the second half of The Necromancer. That means that we're two-thirds through our second series, The Secrets of the Immortal Nicholas Flamel by Michael Scott. We're a book club podcast with the Nerd Party Network, and we're reading and rereading young adult books and sharing them with each other. Yep. So as best friends, we've been sharing these books with each other, and we turned the product into a podcast. So we started with a series that Asia had read. We moved on to one that I have read. And that way you get a range of perspectives. Mine this time is rereading, Asia's for the first time, and soon we'll be announcing our next series, which will be one that Asia's read and I haven't. Yes, and part of the way we run this show is that the newcomer, me in this case, gets to summarize the reading in case you couldn't read along with us. So I'll just go ahead and quickly summarize the second half of The Necromancer. So we start with the twins, Flamels, Aoife, and Neaton go to meet Prometheus, and he gives Josh the magic of fire, at which point Virginia, John, and Mars lure Josh to Dee's offices. From there, Josh is convinced to summon... Coatlicue? <laughs> Coatlicue? Wait, I looked it up and it was Coatlicue is how somebody said it online. Okay. I'm going to refer to her as the Mother Archon for the rest of this episode. I'm calling because, her Quat like you. Because hopefully she doesn't come back. She doesn't. But anyway, Josh is convinced to summon the Mother Archon by D, which, you know, goes about as well as expected. Terribly. And Scatty and Joan realize that they're actually in a shadow realm, and they are immediately joined by Francis, Palamedes, and Shakespeare, who are told by the hook-handed man, which we finally get to meet in person, whose name is Marathew, which we learn means death, that they have to go back in time to help ensure that Danu Talis falls. And Billy and Machiavelli make it back to Alcatraz to awaken the monsters, but most dramatically of all, when given the final choice, Josh chooses D and Dare and leaves Sophie behind. So before we get into all of that, I'll just go ahead and give my impressions. There was definitely a lot going on in this section of reading. Like, we finally meet the hook-handed man, but we don't really get that many answers about him. And I was mainly happy because Joan and Francis are finally reunited, and that whole sappy moment I just ate up because I love love, so I very much enjoyed that. And, of course, we get the expected downfall of Josh, or at least I expected it. And I have lots to say about this, but we can save it until the very end when we get to that part of the reading. Yeah, we both have a lot to say about Josh, and yeah, let's save it for the end. I agree with you. It's really nice to see Francis and Joan reunited because they are so sweet and so passionate. And I spoke about this a little bit last episode, that it kind of feels like this book really feels like a turning point, and I feel like this reading verifies that because we have a major tonal shift, again, because Josh chooses the other side. And for me, another thing that I noticed as I finished this book is that this was really reinforced for me because I must have read the first four books the first time in the summer of 2010, which is when this book came out. And because I remember being left on the cliffhanger of Josh leaving and we us meeting Marathew 
And then I had to wait the whole year for the next book, which was obviously really, really tragic. So I read the last two as they came out. But I read the first four, I think, the year The Necromancer came out. So I always knew The Necromancer. Like, deep down, it's always going to have a level of suspense for me because I, when I first read the series, like, that was, like, a cutoff point for me. But I really loved some of the world building. We get the memory from Zephaniah and Prometheus. We get some time travel, which is messy, but I'm sure we'll talk about it. I remember being really confused by the time travel when I read it the first time. So hopefully, as an adult... I'll understand it a little better. And remembering, I don't remember all the details of the ending, but this reading is really fun and suspenseful in a new way, knowing the ending. So basically, we just need to like finish this recording because I need to keep reading because I'm like, I want to get to the next part so badly. So let's do that. Let's dive into Prometheus. We meet Prometheus in his shadow realm, and he made the... Humani out of mud, and he has a red and anise-scented aura. And more importantly, we find out that the witch is called Zephaniah, and she's actually Prometheus's older sister. And we also get a really cool memory of her and Prometheus going to an ancient unnamed city where Prometheus awakened the first humans, and she finds a crystal skull, and we find out that she really wanted to destroy basically everything Archon. Yeah, and we also find out that Abraham was alive on Donatalus, which we kind of knew, but, like, we get that, like, they were speaking to him, and he was writing the Codex before the fall of the island, and that he was moderately good friends with Zephaniah, and that he had a pure gold aura, which we find out later in the reading. But, anyway, Prometheus, he randomly has a southern accent, so that was a little weird as I was reading it, and he does, he doesn't want to give Josh the magic of fire, but Sophie like kind of act as if the witch possessed her and tells him it's his duty to help the humani and that kind of convinces him yeah i wanted to ask about that because is this why endor gave sophie her memories so that she could tell prometheus through sophie to help the twins save the humans was that the purpose i never thought about it that way that makes sense it definitely makes sense because you know what we find out a little later on is Prometheus has very team human, and so is Zephaniah. Because so far, we've only had elders who are, like, evil, or they're neutral. Like, Hecate was neutral, but all the other elders we've met have been dark elders, except Dora and Prometheus. So it's kind of nice that they're, like, pro-human. So that makes sense. I personally still think that the main reason we got the witch giving Sophia memories was for exposition purposes, but... It definitely, like, plot-wise for Zephaniah to make that choice makes sense that that would be why. Okay. Well, before we get to Josh learning about fire, let's just go ahead and head over to Billy and Machiavelli really quick because we can just cover their whole plot right now. They only have, like, three chapters. But if we remember, we left off on the cliffhanger of the Feathered Serpent with a really crazy name that I'm not going to say, saying that he's going to spare Machiavelli, but we didn't know what was going to happen to Billy. But Billy obviously immediately goes into an outrage, like, don't kill me, and is, like, ready to put up a fight. Which is incredibly childish. But we get this really awesome, sassy line from Billy, because his elder master, Quetzalcoatl, is like, you failed me. And Billy's like, personally, I think you failed me. You didn't give me enough warning of how evil she was going to be or how powerful she was going to be. But I thought that was so funny because he was so sassy. We haven't gotten sass like that. 
from any of our characters. So I liked that a lot that we got that from Billy. And then I loved Machiavelli kind of stepping in like the adult and he's like, okay, let's establish some ground rules. Neither of you like being threatened. Well done. Like it was so relatable because it really did feel like the elder and Billy were both being so childish. Yes. But so luckily they both get a second chance to destroy the monsters and Machiavelli tells Billy how he's never considered killing his master because Billy kind of asks asks him about it. And he says he's never thought about it because he wants to have the option to have his immortality removed if there comes a day when he wants to age and die. Which I just thought it was interesting that he's actually thought about dying sometime in the future. Like, eventually. Yeah. And that's just further proof that Machiavelli is still very much human. And we've talked about this a lot, that, you know, one of the reasons that like Machiavelli resonates with me is that he, and he kind of has more of a revelation of this in a couple chapters, but he's more human than D like, even though it's a dark elder servant and even kind of in many ways more human than Billy. I mean, Billy definitely lives like a little more of a, a full immortal life, but Machiavelli still very much, he likes to think of himself as in tune with humanity a little bit. And I kind of, you know, the fact that he, has, you know, considered that at some point he will want to die, possibly, it's, you know, it's humanizing for Machiavelli, who could otherwise be really evil. Yeah, but at the same time, Machiavelli, on their way back to Alcadraz, he talks about how he's, like, he stopped caring for anyone as, through Mm -hmm. his immortality, and he specifically says that he stopped thinking of humans as individuals and instead saw them as masses of people, enemies versus friends, which I just thought was really interesting because this is exactly what Nicholas warned Josh way in the beginning of the series about how you need to continue to look at humans as individuals. Otherwise, it's easy to be able to disconnect and feel like you're doing the right thing. Yeah, and we definitely have that evil side of him too because he starts having second thoughts about the about releasing the monsters And it's because he's like, that elder just chose to keep me alive, kind of on a whim. Like, this elder happens to be good friends with my master, so that's what saved me. And he didn't consider my centuries of service. Like, Machiavelli, he's still selfish in that his, his sort of transformation that he's starting, it's not because of some altruistic, like, oh my god, all those people in San Francisco, like, will die because of the monsters. Like, he's getting there, but it's not, that's not where he starts. He starts with, the elders were ready to dispose of me because of one mistake and completely disregarding my years of service. And, like, selfishly, he's like, that doesn't seem fair. So he's clearly having second thoughts about the monsters. And Billy is too, because Billy's like, I see you're thinking things. I might be thinking those things too. Yeah, which this is why, I mean, as childish as it was, I did like how Billy kind of was, he was prepared for a fight if the Feathered Serpent was going to actually kill him, his master, because both Machiavelli and Dee, I think, are kind of starting to realize just how expendable they are to their Dark Elder masters, despite, you know, like they said, their centuries of service, and they should really be starting to focus on what's in their best interest versus what's in the best interest of the Dark Elders, because they need to focus on themselves, which since the Dark Elders see them as very disposable, which obviously we know D has his new plan and everything, and he has those plans that, like, maybe Machiavelli needs to make sure he has a plan, too. Definitely. 
But then let's go ahead and hop over to one of my favorite characters, Scatty, where she figures out that they're in a shadow realm, which means that they haven't actually traveled through time yet. And that means that they can escape. Yeah, which is. Which is cool because Scatty's like, I know I can get out of a situation if it's a shadow realm because I can fight my way out. I can find an entrance or an exit. And then she probably finds out that it's a shadow realm. She's like, oh, my goodness. Thank the Lord. But basically, on right there, we on our other plot line, we have Tammuz and the Three Musketeers. And Tammuz is like, he's so ready to kill Francis. And then Francis is like, do me a favor. And Tammuz is like, okay, whatever you want. Kind of just to get rid of him. Like, it didn't take a lot to convince Tammuz. Like, Francis lit some flames, and he was like, and Tammuz was like, okay, you can have whatever you want. Just leave me alone. Like, not a very particularly threatening elder, but packing up when Joan and Scatty are running through the shadow realm and Joan just says snakes. I jumped in my chair. I was like, Oh my God, there's snakes. I'm going to die. And then she's like, there aren't any snakes. And I was like, Oh, thank goodness. But anyway, our three musketeers, Frank, Francis, Tamu, Francis, Palamedes and Shakespeare, they basically get drawn into the shadow realm with Tamu's and Marathu's help. And they kind of land with Scatty and Joan, and they're basically right in front of the hook-handed man, and he's like, this is my shadow realm. So was this part of Machiavelli's plan? Or did the hook-handed man, like, that all had to do with him with the lay gates, bringing Joan and Scatty? It was all him. It was all him. It was all the hook-handed man. Because Machiavelli genuinely believed he was sending that back to the Pleistocene era of the human world. So what I think is probably more likely is that the hook-handed man swapped the materials, like the bone dust or the mammoth bone or whatever, in Machiavelli's connect collection. Because Machiavelli genuinely believed he was sending them to the Pleistocene era. Like, he wouldn't have sent them to a shadow realm. Yeah. Because he knows Scatty can get out. Like, he wanted to send her away where she'd have to live a million years to get back. But... Let's actually save Marethew a little bit because we're going to get some more reveal from him. And we haven't spoken about D, and D's making some discoveries himself. Yes, because D manages to separate Clarot and Excalibur, and he uses them to get him and Virginia back to San Francisco. And he basically realizes realizes that the elders use the swords to create shadow realms, but the archons use them to make legates. So D makes a legate from the shadow realm they're in to jump them all the way basically to his home right outside his house in San Francisco. But his hands did get all burned up with like blisters as a price. So that sounded painful. Well, as we see, the swords are like they're vampiric and they take a cost as you know, like they get absorbing. Like, they absorb some of your aura, so it makes sense that there's a cost, especially for just a regular human like D. But he's getting really scary, and we should talk a little about D and Dare in his apartment. Yes. A little bit. Because I love that Virginia, like, has this thought about how D and Machiavelli, their upbringings from their the time period they come from, she comments on the fact of how they tend to underestimate underestimate women and how they really have underestimated Paranel, which I think is so true because we've gotten plenty of proof of how Machiavelli and Dee thinking they can easily contain her, defeat her. I think that it does somewhat have to do with the time period they come from of underestimating women, but 
she also comments on that she thinks D underestimates her power and ability. Yeah. And it's so true. We do see it time and time again. Machiavelli, he's like, I know it's going to be hard, but he's, there's never a doubt in Machiavelli's mind that he could take Perinelle in a fight. He's like, it's going to be hard, but I could do it. And there's a little bit of poetic irony because D doesn't need the last two pages of the codex anymore. And it's funny because Josh has them, but he doesn't need them because that's the final summoning for the dark elders. But He's not planning on summoning the Dark Elders anymore, so he's got the most of the the codex that he needs. And then Darrow's being so... Either she's really coy or she's really stupid because she keeps asking D why he needs her and, like, what part of his plan she is. Like, because I'm like, he obviously needs you for his flute, for your flute. Like, what else does she have to offer that D doesn't have? Is... A magic flute that can knock beasts out. Like, when she asked him, she's like, why do you choose me, doctor? And I'm like, because you have a magical flute that can knock out beasts. Like, are you being playful or are you being stupid? I don't know. Did you feel that way or was that just me being, like, annoyed? (laughs) I mean, I didn't think too much of it. I think she was... I mean, I was genuinely curious, too, because obviously from what we've learned about Virginia, she's... Seems very dangerous. She's rumored to have killed her master, which she kind of explains that she didn't directly kill her master. She got him killed, basically. Very clever. Also, she has an axe, and she, like, uses her axe to, like, kill people. Vicious. But I know... Yeah, so I don't know. (laughs) I just didn't focus on that part as much. So I don't know if it was her being, if she was genuinely asking. For me, like, as the reader, I was genuinely like, why did he choose to work with Virginia? Like, she obviously seems dangerous, but we don't know her that much. But I am curious. I guess for me it was, like, the flute. Like, it was obvious, but maybe that's because I'd read it before. But the flute, because is it, the flute, can only Virginia use the flute or can anyone use it? I think you have to know how to use the flute. So, like, anyone could use it. Like, it's not like she made it, but she's an expert at it because she's had it for a couple hundred years. Okay, because I was curious about that, because when he did say that, I was wondering, okay, well, does he just need the flute so, like, he could toss her to the side and use it himself, or he actually needs Virginia to be the one to play the flute? Because that, to me, was, like, oh, question. Yeah, and related to that, Dee's like, and then I will rule the world. And she's like, don't forget me, I'm part of this. And Dee was like, yeah, you can be there, too. And no thought for Machiavelli, who's been a really good ally to Dee. Even though D has not earned it, D keeps throwing him under the bus. D is so rude. D every chance D gets, D is like you're expendable and forgettable. And Machiavelli is like, I won't tell the elders that you failed. Here's where the twins are. Like Machiavelli is looking out for D, and D like doesn't even mention him. I think for that it could be that at this point he just you know Machiavelli still works for the Dark Elders, and the Dark Elders yeah. at this point are one of his enemies as well. So I don't think he'd include Machiavelli because Machiavelli essentially is on the enemy side right now. But I think if Machiavelli fully like disowned himself from the dark elders, I think that they could work together because they're both very smart. And like, obviously even if they don't want to be friends, like it's the enemy of the enemy. Yeah. Oh my God. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That, that saying. (laughs) Also, we should just mention Niten's aura is blue and Virginia's aura smells like sage, which is kind of cool, which means that most of the aura smells we've gotten have been like herbal or brewing or medicinal smells. So if you remember the previous podcast episode where we talked about this, 
I'm now amending mine when it would 100% smell like coffee. I know that's very basic, but I'm drinking coffee as we record right now. So I would just have a teal blue aura that smells like coffee or silver aura that smells like coffee. Okay. Or bronze. Copper, copper. Copper aura that smells like coffee. That's me. Okay. I still like that Sophie's is like vanilla ice cream. That sounds perfect. Yeah, I know. Hers smells real good. <laughs> but anyway, let's go ahead and hop back to Hades, which is Prometheus's shadow realm, where Sophie and Josh are having a conversation. And once again, Josh is not being trusting. And I think that Sophie is right that, you know, they'll have to put some kind of trust in the Flamels, but that doesn't mean they still don't can't have some kind of skepticism with them but they need to trust them a little bit because they still don't know what they're doing and they need they need somebody to trust so they they don't have to blindly trust the flamels but they still need to trust somebody whereas josh is josh just has so many doubts about them that i feel like they're coming from more of a place of anger so it's almost like his emotions are clouding his judgment because it's not even just like okay like we should be skeptical of them. He's like, I don't know. It, Josh to me, just like, he doesn't actually, his logic doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. We've talked about this a lot too. And I'm sure we'll talk about it more. Like he's so suspicious of Paranel, and he's like, yeah, maybe the witch's memories are taking over. And this was one of those moments that really frustrated me because it felt one of more toxically masculine. And granted, we've talked about Josh's behavior as being very immature, like more than anything, like, there might be misogyny in it, but I think it's immature more than anything else. But, like, I definitely, like, for me as a reader, I was reading it and I was like, he distrusts Paranel and he's kind of vicious about her. Like, in a way that he doesn't like Nicholas, he doesn't trust Nicholas, but the way he talks about Paranel is kind of, like, more sinister. And he doesn't listen to Sophie when she's talking about her own body. Like, Sophie's like, Paranel says the memories won't hurt me. I feel better now that I'm not worried about it. I feel in control. Like, she's like, I feel fine. And Josh is like, I don't think so. Yeah. He's I, like, I don't believe you. Like, he's overruling the two women and specifically overruling Sophie about her awareness of her own body. And I was like, ooh, like, that's where, like, we moved into, like, a little bit of sexism. Yeah, that was super frustrating to read. Yeah. And, like, oh, my God, right afterwards, he the food thing when he's like, I'm hungry. I don't want to learn the magic right now. Can't wait till after dinner. Oh my God. I was reading that and I was like, is he four years old? Like, I was like, I mean, I like to think I was not like that when I was 15, 16. He was so entitled and rude and ungrateful and snooty. Like Prometheus is like, I don't want to train another human. And he's like, I'll make an exception for this kid. And Josh is like, "Mm, but what about my schedule first? And like, Thank you, Michael Scott, for using the word petulant because Josh was so petulant. Oh, my God. I want to slap him. Oh, my God. Yeah. Josh is just. It's like his, which we'll talk, I think, about this a little bit later. It's like his skepticism or doubts of them. Like, he can't go in the middle. His feelings are to the extreme. So it's like, if I don't trust you, I don't trust you completely. Whereas he blindly trusts D. But it's not mm-hmm. like he doesn't have a healthy amount of skepticism between the both of them. Like it just that's why to me it just doesn't logically make sense, which could be immaturity, I guess. But to me it's idiocy. Like that's why to me Josh's character is stupid. I would agree. 
But anyway, you said you wanted to slap him. Paranel basically did because <laughs> she straight up tells Josh that he is not and will never be more powerful than Sophie. And Nicholas quickly tries to reassure Josh that, you know, together, when they work together, that's what makes them stronger and makes up for one another's weaknesses. But when she said that, I was like, what did she mean? Like, is she saying that because she doesn't like him or is that actually true and what she believes? I don't think it's because she doesn't like him because we get proof later on that she likes Josh. I think that she doesn't trust Josh, which, you know, she shouldn't. Rightfully so. But I think that it's more of that she... Like, I think it's genuinely what she believes, but I don't think it's, like, power in the same way. Like, Josh is like, Sophie learned a magic after eating, therefore I should be able to. And, like, that just seems like not a big thing, where, like, maybe Sophie is more prone to, like, magical power. And you will see as the book ends, like, where they end up each with magic, like, when the third book, when the sixth book finishes, like, you will see that they choose sort of different paths in magic and I don't feel like that's a spoiler because obviously they've been on different trajectories so far but like they are very different and I think that maybe I don't know exactly what Paranel means but I think what she means more is like just a magical potential Josh has one direction and Sophie has another and I do think that like Nicholas is right that it's different strengths but that they're obviously not the same if anything I would think about how in our last episode, how Paranel was talking to Sophie about how, you know, if they would have warned the twins about it, how Sophie, you know, would have probably still went through with it, whereas Josh probably wouldn't have. And maybe by saying that, she's kind of saying that Sophie's intentions are more like pure of heart and she's thinking more selflessly and wants to help people. So usually people who are like that, you would think that their potential for power should be higher. Whereas if Josh's are all selfish intentions of, I want to be powerful because this makes me feel better about myself. There's only so far he can go. So Mm -hmm. maybe that's what she meant by it. I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that we will get a little more clarification, but it definitely has to do with like, they're not equals in like, they're not like numerically equal. Like if you like took up like a stat stat score, like Sophie will always be a 10 at air magic and he'll be like a nine, something like that. I think it's more that like their powers are, distributed differently like what their each their roles are is different like josh has a major like a really strong strategical mind now and that's granted it was just given to him but like that's a skill sophie doesn't have you know yeah so anyway then josh goes to learn fire magic from prometheus and of course josh's first thought after he learns the magic is that his trigger tattoo is cooler than sophie's That's literally the first thing he's like, after he's learned, he's like, wow, my tattoo is way cooler than Sophie's. Like, just so annoying. I hate him. I hate his character. (laughs) It's always a comparison, but he always has to be on top. And also, like, I disagree with him. I'm like, I don't want a tattoo on the palm of my hand. Like, that was annoying. Scary. It was like a little demon face. Like, I'd rather just have a. It's the cover of the book. I'd rather just have a boring circle that's discreet. It kind of looked like jewelry. Like, Sophie has, like, a little chain. Like, it's a tattoo chain, but, like, she's got a little bracelet. Also, I mean, the sunstones are really cool. Like, like I said last episode, like, I went to Mexico last year, and I saw some of the sunstones in the National Museum, and they're really, really cool. But I don't know if I'd want one of those on my wrist. I mean, on my palm. Yeah. But, you know, just for those of you who have been keeping track, Prometheus is like, it is said that the other magics are as good as blah, blah, blah. This is not true. 
keep track of it, it will come back again. Oh, well, I still think fire magic's the best, but not with it's Josh. It's water. Josh sucks. <laughs> but <laughs> also because the Prometheus talks about how Josh, like with his gold ore, like fire would be his strength, whereas Sophie mm-hmm. with silver water would be her strength. Are we going to get like more of that later on? Um, Maybe. I'm not sure. It definitely has to do with, like, the fact that they're the sun and the moon twin. Yeah. Because, like, and that we've gotten told, and that's sort of, like, general, like, a fantasy, like, just a lot of fantasy that focuses on the four elements. Like, obviously yeah. water is the element of the moon, and sun is, like, fire is the element of the sun. And we know that she's the, the moon twin, and he's the sun twin, and the pyramid that they fight on is the pyramid of the sun. I just... You know me, I don't I don't want to be associated with Josh. So like I believe that fire magic to me so far seems to be the most powerful, but like if it's gonna well, be Sophie associated, also uses it all the time. Yeah, because it's the best. I like I would use the fire also because it said they can create fire, which therefore to me means it would be the best. Yeah, I'm still team water, but you know anyway. if we did it if we covered Airbender the last if we covered Avatar the last airbender, you'd see I'm also a big water fan. Though it's also like the best element, but never gets used. Okay. So then I wrote down, wait, is Mars going to possess Josh to bring him to D? Which is exactly what happens. Basically, Mars calls to Josh to go to D, and now D tells Josh that he's going to teach him necromancy, which is disgusting. And Josh just thinks the whole thing is a dream, but he's, like, on board and excited. Also, like... This is why Nicholas didn't want you to be awakened by some random elder because that elder then has power over you. Like, you thought Nicholas was being selfish, but, like, Nicholas was literally trying to prevent stuff like this because Josh was at the whims of Mars. Like, ugh, made me so mad. And then they used the crystal skull, the archon skull, to telepathy, um, to use telepathy to sort of control and, like, take care of Josh. And it was so funny because Paranel's like, we can't really stop him. So, like, we got to make sure he gets where he's going safe because he definitely thinks this is a dream and he's in no control. And Paranel's like, just don't let him do anything stupid. And Sophie's like, this is Josh. He's he's, going to do something stupid. And then immediately he's like, I'm going to drive faster. (sighs) Anyway, but this is important. And this harkens back to an episode that we spoke about. I think episode, the episode about the magician part two. We find out that the swords, Clarant and Excalibur, they corrupted Mars and they turned him evil. So that's why Zephaniah encased him in his aura and hid him. And it's to protect him from the rage of her brother because Prometheus hates Mars because he betrayed Prometheus' sister. Like he was Prometheus' brother-in-law or Mars was Prometheus' brother-in-law and Mars turned bad because of the swords and that's why Zephaniah did it, because she loves him, but she was trying to hide him because she knew Prometheus was going to come after him. What do you think, Asia? It's still terrible and wrong. She should have just let Prometheus do his thing. Also, I'm just, does Prometheus not know where he is? Because why, what's Prometheus? Prometheus didn't know. He didn't know? Well, I think it's still wrong. It would one thing if she put him into hiding and he wanted to go into hiding, but to hold anyone against their will is just morally wrong to me. So I don't agree with that. And if he truly was evil, maybe he should have been killed. So that's my thoughts on it. Yeah. And this is like a couple of these things that we've been talking about. Like, we definitely have gotten a vibe that the elder race 
is less emotionally in tune. And the characters talk about it. Machiavelli literally yeah. says to Zimaldos, he's like, I didn't realize you could, like, feel happiness. Because it's something that I didn't notice the first time I read this series, but I've really been noticing now, is that they really think of them as distinct races. Like, the elder race is, like, a biologically different race than the humans. And that part of that race is that they have less positive emotions and they think in much more selfish and transactional terms. I mean, we literally get that the vampires don't have feelings. Like, they can't feel emotions. Yeah. And, like, I totally agree with you. Like, Zephaniah's decision to keep Mars alive is kind of cruel and selfish. And there's no empathy to his pain. There's no, like, you know, empathy to the humans that he's caused pain to. There's no empathy for... Prometheus has justified rage. It's just like, she's like, I love him because he is my husband, but he's in danger. So the only way I can keep him alive is transactionally to lock him up. Like, and I think that that's something that Michael Scott has developed really well that I didn't notice as a younger person reading this, but there's like a complexity to like the elder race that they are also less, like they're less sympathetic. Like their hearts are, are colder and that's overarching even for the good guys. Which I actually really like. I think that makes it a much more of like an adult concept of like that they are. It's not like they're gods, like better humans or like, you know, more powerful humans. Like they are separate biological being. They're just a bunch and of And therefore they have and they have flaws because of that. I had a question, though, because Prometheus says this. Why can't the elders touch the, the Archon skulls? I don't know. I'm assuming it's just because it's Archon. We might get some answers on it. We know that Zeph and I like tried to destroy all the Archon, Archon and Earthlord technology, and we're not really sure why. I think it's just because she thinks it's evil, and because it does like corrupt your aura, kind of like the swords. And the swords can't be destroyed, but like basically, it sounds like the elders were very skeptical of anything that sort of has the power to absorb aura. But. And we just kind of get the vibe also the elders, like, don't like anything that's more powerful than them. Yeah. But we haven't really gotten a better explanation yet. So before we wrap up, Josh, let's wrap up our five friends plot first. So, yeah, let's finish that. So we have Scatty, Joan, Shakespeare, Francis, and Palamedes. And for brevity's sake, I think we should call them the Fab Five. Okay, the Fab Five. Little queer eye moment. <laughs> well, the Fab Five are talking to the hook-handed man who basically says he's planned all of this and he knows all of them. And he's basically omnipotent and all-powerful. So, like, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. We got another clue this reading as to who Marethew is. So we find out his name is Marethew, which is death in the language of John Utalis, and that he's basically planned all of this. He brought them all back. He picked the five of them because he wants to ensure that Don Utalis falls to bring about the flourishing of the human race. So this is when they're going to kind of time ta- travel back to when the fall happens. And this has something to do with the twins. Like, because the twins are the twins of legend, I guess they have to, like, make the island fall again. I'm not really sure. Well, is he like the Grim Reaper? Kind of. Like, he is death. I don't really know exactly what that means. We'll get some more answers. Matthew is now a big character for the last two books. Okay. But something that, like, 
we got another hint as to who Marethu is. What's this the reading. hint? Nope, I can't say it. So this is the second hint. You can't this just reading. tell. You can't tell us where in the book it was. What happened? No, because that'll give it away. Wow. But it's something that again I didn't know. To, no, trust me. If I told you, you would know. Okay, you'll tell me when we turn off the turn off the mic. You know I won't. Yes, you will. No, <laughs> but so. I said this last episode that there was a hint that I never noticed as a young person reading this. Like, I did not notice it. But knowing now who Marethu is, I'm like, oh, that could have been a hint. And then I noticed another one this time. And I was like. Well, he has bright blue eyes. He wears like a mask. And he's got a hood or something. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you. I have no but idea. If I this will is something re- to do with mythology, I'm not going to know anything. It's not. It has nothing to do with mythology. I promise. It has to do with the series. Nothing with mythology. It has to do with the when, series? Mm-hmm. Is he Abraham the mage? I'm not going to tell you. That has to be what it is. Because I don't know what else. I'm, I'm sure that's what it is. That's my guess. It's not. I thought. I'm sure that's what I thought when I first read it. Maybe. But. Um, I mean, I don't know who else he could be. Because if you're saying, is he basically, he's somebody else. Like, he's not actually... Like, he is Marethu, he is death, but he's also, also something somebody, else. Is he Dee's Masters? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. I also, I already told you Dee's Master is mythology. So Yeah, so that doesn't okay, make Okay, but sense. anyway, when we finish the second episode of The Enchantress and we find out who Marethu is, I will go back and revamp the all of these hints. Yeah, you need to point all of them out because obviously I didn't catch any of them. Also, like, I caught them because I know who he is. So, like, I know I'm, I'm not looking look, for them. I'm just going like, to look it up to see who we are. <laughs> don't. You won't want to read the rest of the series. <laughs> okay, let's leave that where it is so that Asia doesn't get too ahead of herself. But let's return to the main San Francisco plot line. We find out that Durandel is the sort of air. And Joyous is the sort of earth. And D's got all four of them. And he tells Josh that if he calls Coatlicue, she can instantly teach him necromancy. And Josh... In his idiocy. The first thing he thinks of when D explains it, he's like, could I bring back dinosaurs? And I was like, really? And D's like, I mean, yeah, you can bring back dinosaurs. But even D was kind of like, that's what you wanted to do with this? Honestly, that comment, because he even references how he could like pull all the ancestors, because obviously he says to get answers about the flamels and who they are, but also like for their parents, who obviously are archaeologists, really interested in history. So I feel like this does kind of show Joss's immaturity and like going back to like what a child would want to do, basically. Like, oh, let's see the dinosaurs and I can get this for my mom and dad. Like, so I feel like that's one part of that. But this section I just wrote, (laughs) Josh is an idiot. And at this point, I hope he dies at the end. Sophie will be better off. And I just said that his instincts are just completely wrong. Like, I still just can't fathom why he, why he would ever trust D. Like, D has made it very clear that he wants to kill him and Sophie. They are completely, they're completely, what's the word? I just lost it. They can be thrown away. What is, what am I thinking? Disposable. Of? They're completely disposable. Like, so I don't understand why he's putting all this trust in D. And that's why I talked about earlier about his sense of, like, extremes. Like, he can't have a healthy amount of skepticism. It's either I don't trust you at all or I fully trust you, which is very, very stupid. 
Yeah, it's like we say, his his suspicion of Nicholas is one thing. We're all for that. But the blind trust of D is illogical. And, like, it's discongruous to, like, be fully behind one when he's so against the other. Like, it'd be one thing if he was like, I don't trust any of this. Yes. Like, if he was just he like, does, I don't trust it's, it's anybody. It's illogical. Yeah, it's illogical. And so Josh starts to summon the, the Mother Archon without knowing any having any idea who, anything about her who she is he's just is like i said blindly trusting d even though d has proven multiple times that he cannot be trusted and then sophie neaton and Efa burst in and so there's a huge fight going on yeah let's get into that so first of all for those of you who are wondering does paranel does not like josh She's as soon as she figures out that josh is gonna call quatlicue and she's like d's gonna sacrifice josh like Quatlicue's gonna eat Josh. Paranel starts crying because she's like she doesn't want Josh to die. Like obviously she doesn't like him because he's a little whiner, but <laughs> <laughs> he's a little. I'm like trying to think of a word that we haven't used yet. He's whiny. That's one. But he's a child. She she doesn't child, respect but she doesn't want him, him to die. Either. He's not deserving of any kind of respect. Exactly, and he's selfish, but. You know, here we go. Like another example of Josh being very selectively thoughtful. Like he's like, I wonder why D hasn't used necromancy for good in the past. But he just lets that go. Like he asked the right question. He's like, because when he gets necromancy explained to him, he thinks this is really great power. But I'm like, it's literally the darkest of arts. Okay. But also like he he didn't he he asked the right question and he just ignored it. And, like, it's very selective of him. It's a, And then, you know, when he gets tired and he's like, Dee, could you take over? It, like, it sounded like a child. Like, like when he was in the Paris catacombs. And he's like, I think I want to turn back. I don't want to get awakened now. And I was like, and Machiavelli's like, it's too late for that. And Dee's like, I'm not going to help you do this thing. Like, J- Josh, he keeps making snap decisions without logic and he keeps regretting them and then he's always like uh it just makes me so mad yeah it's really really frustrating so he summons the mother archon and she which i think the irony of all of this is he's literally summoning like this snake goddess and he obviously hates snakes and she actually has two snake heads and she's wearing snakes like as a skirt almost so i'm sure charles didn't like this either but he there's multiple times where he's like he smells the scent of snakes and he starts to become nauseous and he feels like this is a bad idea and yet he ignores all those triggers all those red flags and's like no this is what i need to do which again illogical and again that's why i said he needs to die because like i just i can't deal with that kind of stupidity but anyway, D ends up freaking out because Josh, being the coward he is, takes Clorant out of the rectangle, which the swords are in a rectangle to make sure that the Mother Archon can't escape because they need to be able to control her. And this at this point is 100% D's fault because, you know, he lied to Josh and he didn't tell him everything he needed to know. So Josh didn't realize that by taking Clorant, that was going to be bad, but what ultimately happens is it means that Aoife has to sacrifice herself. She jumps on the Mother Archon's back to drag her back behind the swords, and they go through the smoke curtain back into whatever Shadow Realm she was. But that all happens, and somehow, somehow Josh decides that now he's going with Dee and Dare, and they flee. And that's, that's the end of the book. 
Yeah, like, he sees Sophie whipping Kratlikyu, and he sees Kratlikyu as beautiful. But, like, that action of seeing Sophie attack this thing is what, like, he decides to just leave her. Yeah, I... Go ahead, go ahead. You go first. I've got some things to say. I was just going to say that, like, because I wrote that at this point, I'm rooting for Josh to die. And like you said, because we haven't mentioned before, but D put a spell on Josh's mind so that he sees the Mother Archon as, like, this beautiful woman. So he doesn't see her as the monster she actually is. So even if we're saying he sees this beautiful woman that he thinks is going to teach him necromancy, still, he doesn't know this woman at all. He's just met her. And... His twin sister is screaming, stop, we're trying to save you. There's a whole save party here that's trying to help you. She's whipping the thing saying, no, stop. But somehow his tiny brain can't comprehend that, you know, maybe this lady is dangerous. Maybe she's not who she says she is. Because as they've experienced in this transition into opening their eyes to what the real world is actually like, a lot of times you can't trust what something is because there's shapeshifters. So his brain, for some reason, just can't comprehend it. So he decides, I trust that stranger lady over my own twin sister. So, you know, she did a terrible thing. So I'm going to turn my back on her and leave with the enemy because that's the right decision. Which one thing I wrote down is what would their parents think? Because if that was my <laughs> child, I'd disown him. I'd be like, you left your sister behind? disowned but that's why for me josh is just an utter disappointment and i hope d kills him i hope the d uses him for whatever he's going to use him and then he murders him because him turning on his back on sophie like he did is unforgivable sophie literally just an ifa they literally just saved his life and he turned his back on them so it's unforgivable and their relationship to me is ruined and i don't think I don't think he will come back from this or he should not come back from this. And Sophie deserves better and she just lost her twin. Yeah, their relationship is effectively severed. At least that's how I would feel. Especially because, like, I agree with everything you said. But it also really frustrates me because, like, if he is so convinced that Nicholas and Paranel are evil and that they're wrong like if he's like d and dare are gonna save the world and i they are the right side if he believes that then he should want to bring his sister with him he should want to protect yeah. her from nicholas and Paranel. but it's not that he's selfish he's like because sophie's vulnerable she's knocked out she's dazed ifa just died and niten is knocked out like if he was so convinced that D and Dare were the right thing for him and the world, he would drag Sophie along with him. But it's because, like, he'd want to protect her. But he's being selfish. Again, it's about being separate and stronger and more powerful and different than Sophie. Because if he really wanted to, like, if he genuinely did what he would, like, if he was, if he thought that going with D was going to be better for everyone, he would want to, for, he would want to bring Sophie with him. But he's just, yeah. he's only looking out for himself. So he thinks that, like, by being with them, he can be better off and better than Sophie. So he leaves her. Like, he abandons her. In, 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 in his mind, with evil people who are trying to, like, take control of her. Like, he thinks Nicholas is evil. And I'm like, wouldn't you want to protect Sophie from that? No, yeah. He's just like, screw her. I don't care about her anymore. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. 
for me also, which this is why for me, like I said, I feel that that was an unforgivable thing and I think that their relationship is forever ruined. And for obviously, we still have two more books. I think how their relationship, how it ends up in the end will kind of be an indicator for the audience uh, kind of showing if, you know, if since this is like a young adult book, a book that's geared towards a younger audience, usually they usually it's more preached for forgiveness. You know, you should forgive people, which coming from an adult perspective, when there's toxic people in your life, you cut them off. It doesn't matter if they're your brother, your parent, you cut them off. So that's why obviously, at least from my opinion, and I think Charles kind of agrees with me, that what Josh did warrants a even if he decides that, you know, he's going to apologize, you know, in the next couple of books and be like, realizes what he did was wrong. If I was Sophie, for me, I'd be like, that's great. And I'm not going to hold a grudge against you because that's, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to hold a grudge and ruin my life, but I can't have a relationship with you anymore. You can't be in my life. The fact that you are willing to abandon me for evil people and strangers, I'm your twin sister. So I just think that'll be a good indication to see how the book has their relationship going in the end because I think that no matter what happens well I already said in a perfect world Josh should die but I don't think that's gonna happen (laughs) so if not I think that whatever happens I hope that Sophie sticks to her guns and is like Josh you're out of my life like I don't care for you anymore I am completely indifferent I don't hate you but I'm completely indifferent I don't think about you because if you feel that you can do that to me, I can turn around and do the same thing to you. But that's just my... I'm obviously not going to reveal how it goes. But I do think that's a really astute point that, like, a younger... Like, a piece of young adult literature that would be geared towards a younger audience would be, like, she should forgive him. Because, like, we're taught to be forgiving. And, you know, forgiveness and, like, not holding grudges is a good quality to have. But, like, he has severed their relationship, and his betrayal is, like, deeper than, like, a white lie that he told her once. It's not like he stole her, like, lunch money once, you know. She should forgive him for that. Like, he, what he's done is truly a a real betrayal, and also, like, contrary to all advice they've received. Because they've gotten advice from all sorts of people, people who love Nicholas, people who hate Nicholas. And they're basically all, like, trust each other work together, always consult with each other. Don't do what you think the other one has said or think what the other one has heard. Like, Prometheus literally just said, whatever you do, talk to your sister before you make a decision. Because, like, don't take second hand. Don't assume you know what she's thinking. Like, talk to her and you'll avoid problems. He assumes that she's in the wrong and that she's, like, evil for attacking Coatlicue. So he abandons her. Like, and Palamedes hates Nicholas. Hates Hates, hates Nicholas. And he's like, stick together. Like, rely on each other. Like, we've gotten advice from literally every single person on the spectrum of, like, liking or not liking Nicholas, who are all, like, more than anything, work together. And that's how you'll protect each other. And he couldn't even follow that advice. Like, so I'm totally with you that the betrayal is complete. And, yeah, like, as adults, like, you know, you listen to this podcast, you know that we're we're best friends. We obviously have been through each other's lives for many years. Like we've seen each other cut off toxic people and we've supported each other like doing that because that is like a, an adult thing that you have to do. And 
I agree that like if it ends up being that Sophie forgives Josh and that they go back to the way they were before, that definitely would make this feel like a younger piece of literature. Yeah. But if she ends up being independent of him, that would actually make this more like mature piece, I think. And for sure, I think that's a really, really awesome observation, Asia, because I definitely didn't think that. Well, also because to me, by because I'm not saying that she shouldn't forgive him because, again, I don't believe in holding grudges because that only brings yourself down. But she doesn't and have to embrace him again. Yes. I think forgiveness is the sense of whatever you whatever that means to her, it would be that I'm letting go of what you did. It will no longer affect me anymore. So, like, sometimes people, you have to forgive. You have to forgive the person in order to move on with your life. But that doesn't mean he gets to be in your life anymore, which it's kind of like with Scatty and Aoife, how we, we don't know the whole story with them, obviously. But obviously something happened for Scatty to completely cut Aoife out of her life, which, you know, Aoife warned them of this. And that's why I feel that Scatty is like Sophie is Scatty and Josh is Aoife. And maybe Josh will realize what he did was wrong and, you know, spend his whole life trying to make it up to her. But like, he doesn't deserve that. Like, so he doesn't deserve Sophie's grace and acceptance. And yeah, so I do. I think it'll be interesting to see how the entire book ends to know, like how we said, if it's mature or not. Well, that just means we have to keep reading so we can decide what happens. Yes. But anyway, that was a lot. But final question before we wrap up the episode which I just wrote at the end of my notes after finishing, because we've talked about this before, but are we sure each book is named after a character? Because I know we've kind of mentioned that this would be Machiavelli's book because of the color of the... The smoke on the outside the of the cover. The smoke on the cover, because it's gray. But to me, this doesn't really seem like Machiavelli's book at all. Like, Machiavelli definitely seemed less... He seemed more of a side character. Like, we didn't get a lot on him. And if anything, I think the title, The Necromancer, refers to maybe that, like, you know, necromancy is what convinced Josh to turn over to the dark side, or D, who's well-known for being a necromancer, mm-hmm. is using his knowledge of that to convince G, to convince, I just combined Josh and D's name. G. To make G. <laughs> or is, like, you know how he's using a necromancy yeah. to persuade Josh to join his side? Like, that to me makes more sense, especially with that being the very end of the book. Yeah. I wonder, I agree, like, reading this, I'm like, this has to be Josh's book. Yeah. Like, it just has to be. And if I remember correctly what happens in the next book, Machiavelli should be the warlock anyway. Again, that could be me misremembering. But, Michael Scott, if you're listening, we were following you in, like, the color aura thing. Can you just verify that this one was Josh and the next one is Niccolo? Obviously, the last one is is Sophie. Like, I'm 100% sure of that. But, um, because the... Aura colors, you know, don't work out. But plot-wise, it makes more sense for this to be Josh's and for Nakiavelli's to be the next one. So hopefully Michael Scott will tweet at us and confirm. And we should also hopefully, like, right now I'm leaning towards Nicholas, D, Paranel, Josh, Machiavelli, Sophie. So hopefully we'll get some confirmation of that as we keep reading. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, we'll be reading next week. We'll be reading chapters 1 through 28 of The Warlock, which is book 5, for next week. So if you're reading along, read up to there. And if you have any predictions, theories, or questions, or you just want to talk about the Nicholas Flamel series more, remember that you can stay in touch with us on the Nerd Party website. You'll just head over to nerdparty.com contact and select throwback paperback. 
You can send us an email there and you can get on touch with the network on Twitter at join nerd party or on Instagram at the nerd party and on facebook.com slash the nerd party. To find me, I'm at Asia Bonia on Twitter and at Asia.bonia on Instagram. And I'm at C.E. Sheeland on both Twitter and Instagram, though as we've said before on the show, we're both more Instagram people, so if you want to reach out to us, reach us on Instagram, you're more likely to find us. And remember that we're a relatively new podcast, so make sure that if you enjoyed this, you rate and review the podcast, share it with your friends, and of course, check out all the other awesome podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. And make sure you're subscribed so that you don't miss us next week. Yes, hit that subscribe and have a good one. We'll see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.